Welcome, listeners, to The Change We Seek, a podcast from a prevention perspective. This perspective means we look at things like systems, barriers, protective factors, and risk factors, and always view these issues from a strengths-based perspective. The podcast is sponsored by the West Virginia Collegiate Strategic Prevention Framework Partnership for Success Initiative. The West Virginia CSPF PFS's goal is to prevent the onset and reduce the progression of substance misuse and its related problems among higher education students in Southern West Virginia. The federal grant was awarded by the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration to Marshall University's Center of Excellence for Recovery. We hope that with our project and this podcast, we can begin to cultivate a culture of prevention on college campuses across the state. We are student leaders who will support, enhance, and build the prevention infrastructure. Quick disclaimer, the views and opinions expressed in this podcast are only those of the hosts and the guests. They are not the views and opinions of SAMHSA, Marshall University Research Corporation, the West Virginia Collegiate Strategic Prevention Framework Partnership for Success, and or the Participating Institute of Higher Education. Intro music is by Soundroll and the title track is Feeling Home. Now, our host. All right, welcome listeners. My name is Devin Town, uh, pronouns he, him, and his. I'm a student from West Virginia School of Osteopathic Medicine and a student leader for that campus. And I'm here today to do a continuation episode from our last conversation on alcohol use and misuse. And I'm here today with a very special guest, one of my educators from the West Virginia School of Osteopathic Medicine, Dr. Andrea Nazar, and I'll let her introduce herself if she doesn't mind. Thanks, Devin. Uh, thank you all for joining today. Um, my name is Andrea Nazar, as Devin said, and my pronouns are she, her, hers. Um, it is a pleasure to be here today uh, to talk about this. I have had over 20 years of experience in direct primary care and have been in medical education for most of those years. So this, this is a topic that is very, very critically important in primary care, and I'm happy to, happy to share any experience I am able to with you. All right, great. So we can get started if you don't mind. We really appreciate you being here. Uh, and giving your time to myself and to our listeners today. All right, so I'll get started with the first question. Um, so what trends, if any, have you noticed on campus, locally, state level, and or nationally in terms of alcohol among college and professional students? That is, that is always a fantastic question and a great way to start a conversation like this. Um, and yet it is, it is complicated because trends are, are represented in such different ways. And we certainly can uh, look to facts and figures that are by some of our trusted mental health organizations and uh, SAMHSA and other major organizations. And then we can also look on a much more microscopic level right around us and see what's going on. But I, I think that this with alcohol, it is, it is different in many ways than other substance use disorders um, because it is so prevalent and it, and it is, and it is legal. And so the, the, the difference between the passage from use to misuse to dependence to addiction really can sometimes in those earlier stages be less clear. So I think, I think that uh, concentrating on young adults, um, professionals, I think you did a nice job in the last uh, segment talking about the difference between college student use and general population use for age match controls. Um, and that is very interesting because for many people, the use of alcohol and actually even the misuse of alcohol is part of the college tradition. And it is anticipated that that will happen. 
Um, interestingly, through the years, um, that has changed as the drinking age went to age 21. I, I know that for many of our listeners, that's that's just the way it's always been. But um, I, I actually came from the time uh, when when the drinking age was 18. So making just even making the drinking age different has changed the um, probably not the use pattern that much, but but it has changed the acceptance of it. So trends, I think that um, occasionally we hear that the male female ratio is getting getting more equal. Um, the numbers that are presented usually on the websites uh, traditionally still have male a little bit ahead of female use, um, but I do I do think that that is equaling out. I think. I think that uh, social media has been such a game changer with so many, so many ways that statistics are presented and the way alcohol is presented that that, that also makes it somewhat difficult to, to, to comment on a, on, a, on a legitimate trend. And then finally, since March 2020, um, the whole world is different. And so there may be, uh, there certainly is less public drinking and partying than there was previously. So does that mean that there's less? Does that mean that there's more is really actually difficult to call? I think we've all read some statistics where mental health prevalence certainly has gone up during this period and people are are responding to some of the isolation and increased stressors and the and the and the complexity of everything being so uncertain, um, probably with self-medication with alcohol. So I didn't really answer your question very specifically there, Devin, but I think that um I think that is actually uh, for me, the way it is actually represented. No, I appreciate it. No, I think that's a great answer to the question. I think that it hits a lot of different points that, you know, I was thinking about and um, we talked about last conversation too. And a couple of points I wanted to touch on with uh, you just made and kind of bring up was just the legality of it, which I think is so important to mention. And I think that's very similar to what we had on a previous episode without, um, with uh, prescription drug use. And that's I, th- I think very similar because you can more readily access um, alcohol as well as um, prescription drugs. And that I think just increases the risk of it being misused. Uh, and then also with COVID, I was thinking that since people are more likely drinking in their homes rather than out at a bar or a restaurant, I was thinking that that might play into um, you know more exposure um, in homes for, 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 you know, children's, for the caregivers might be, you know, consuming alcohol, um, more at home rather than, uh, elsewhere that they might've been prior, like after work or something like that. So I was thinking, um, that might play into just, you know, one of the, I guess, risk factors would, would, would just be, um, being, being exposed to that in your upbringing. So I was thought that might be an interesting kind of conversation too. Absolutely. And that, and that is an excellent point because, um, the, the normalization of the use of alcohol, e- even overuse of alcohol and misuse um, in the home, as, as you have identified, is a major risk factor for continued use. Um, and and the, the fact that that may be more visible to younger children uh, and adolescents and so forth um, is, is a very good point. All right. So what risk and um, even more importantly, protective factors are most associated with alcohol misuse in your um, perspective. Um, again, this is this is a great question with a lot of depth to it. Um, I, I I find it interesting when you speak with people about alcohol that, um, it, as with many subjects in life, um, there are some people that are very dogmatic, all or none kind of people. You know, black and white kind of people, and either you don't 
drink or you're an alcoholic and there is no, no in between. Um, I personally think that that is not true. I do think that there are some people that safely occasionally use alcohol um, and are, are at much less risk. So what makes those people at less risk is, a, is another way to think of that question. You know, what is the difference with that? Certainly previous exposure um, and family history. Um, and you know we are learning more and more about the uh, genetic inheritance patterns and what, what might actually be physical um, physical risk factors associated with that. But the social risk factors and the cultural risk factors associated with that are, are very, uh, very important as well. Uh, for many people, culturally or spiritual beliefs would impact that. Um, so using alcohol would just not even be a real, real consideration for many young people. And if they have the strength in that and the acceptance of, of those kind of family um, norms and cultures and, and so forth. So that would be a protective as well. Um, but as as we all know, in adolescence and throughout life, peers are extremely important. And so what what are what are children, our adolescent, young adults and, and even older adults, um, what the peer group is comfortable with and is accepting as the, the standard of behavior uh, is is critically important. So I think many parents um, for centuries have always wished that they could choose their children's friends um, and continue to do that. Um, but that is there. There are social influences in for most people um, outside the home, and so to pay attention to that, it, for a, for a person coming into undergraduate years or that time of life, even even without the um, structure of college, um, if if you are in a social group where it is not so much as what are we going to do tonight, as where are we going to drink tonight kind of mentality, then that is very different than people that have a um, a good mix of non-alcoholic related activities and interests and, and social groups. So I think your peer group, your family group, your um, activities that are not centered around drinking um, and, and alcohol use. And sometimes in our culture, food and alcohol are so closely related that, um, you know, for many people, dinner parties, you know, bring to mind um, alcohol use and so forth. So just, just really, I think increasing awareness of that and um, it, you know, to have as many dinner parties and as many social gatherings as before, but not always have alcohol be available or at least not a centerpiece. Um, it is very positive and protective. Um, truly, truly it is, it is such a personal journey and a personal decision Um um, when I say decision, I, I, I don't mean that very many people set out to become dependent on alcohol. I, I don't mean that, but, but to use it and, and have it be a, a central part of your life. Um, so I think, I think it's important for people, um, or, or it is better if people are able to be resilient, adapt to change, have a positive self-image, feel like you do have some direction and purpose, um, alcohol is a very powerful medication, if you will, for all kinds of anxieties and fears. And many people, um, many people experience some element of social anxiety. And, um, and, and truly, it has been written about um, time and time again that, um, that alcohol is, is a great reliever for social anxiety for many people. And, and so to, to have that as a um, is one of your one of your plans for approaching that kind of feeling um, is is a risk factor, and if you can 
have something else to do that uh, to replace that and to have friends and activities that would not necessarily involve needing to have a drink before you had a social activity, uh, that would be a strength too. But again, it comes back to, I think, what, what people's fundamental goals might be for, uh, for drinking at all or over drinking in particular. Um, we know that mental health is very, very prevalent, both diagnosed and even more undiagnosed and, un and not acknowledged mental health. Um, so I think the attention to that, that part of our world and lives uh, is also very important as a protective factor. Yeah, yeah, and those those are great and kind of right on with what I was kind of uh, had in mind too in terms of my perspective about it. And one thing I did um, pick up on that you were talking about is um, exposure and family history. And I always find it interesting because I think, you know, if, and that's always been a clear cut risk factor, family history um, of, you know, alcohol misuse, alcohol use disorder, and like many um, addictions. And I, that's kind of interesting to me a little bit because sometimes when you, when you have conversations with others, and this might just be more of an outlier, but they will say that, oh no, I, you know, I can't consume um, because I have, you know, an uncle or family history um, of this in my family. So I, so I guess some people might use that. Um, I, I guess in terms of the risk factor, that's more genetics mm -hmm. and the exposure might be more of the social implication of it. But I guess if you see sometimes the consequences and some of the deleterious like effects um, that your family might go through um, in your upbringing, that also might steer you away from uh, use of anything really. Um, Absolutely. So Absolutely. And um, that often works um, as a as a positive deterrent and a, and a barrier to, to keep people um, well. Um, it's a mixed bag because then it can be that that one relative um, had had more negative consequences than others. And so um, that particular relative was singled out as 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 having a problem, whereas actually there may be problem drinking throughout the whole situation. Um, yeah. But it can it can be a positive um, a positive restraining factor for people to to get involved in in use and overuse. I think that's a great point. Yeah, and then also kind of like what you touched on is just like what your goals are. Um, what are your ambitions? What does your week look like? Is it a you know pretty low key week for you? Do you not have much going on where you you know are able to? I guess, withstand the effects the next day, or do you not have consequences that might uh, result from your um, maybe excess drinking um, on a given uh, evening? Um, how productive do you need to be in a given week? So I think those are kind of all uh, important to like what your, your goals are, those that are more driven. Um, but, but also, I guess, with that, too, those that are more driven might be more stressed and therefore might use it more um, readily as a as an outlet. Um, mm -hmm. If they if they might have something else going on in terms of um, stress, anxiety, um, other concomitant uh, mental health um, diagnoses or undiagnoses. Right, I, I I absolutely think, and so the so with that the the risk factors are the um, ready availability, general acceptance um, in in many many settings for some drinking and um, and and oftentimes in a group setting um or if you are drinking alone, um, only you know really how much you're drinking versus versus other people. So, so I think I think all of those things play together to have a balance of of risk and protective aspects, and they're fluid. They don't they don't stay the same all the time. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah. Okay, so what are the harmful impacts then of alcohol misuse for college students? And this can be um, you know, physiological, psychological, socially, and or academics. Um, again, I think you did a great job on that in, in the previous presentation. There's There certainly are lots of physical um, consequences from that. And many of them um, are more longitudinal. I think the classic uh, physical effect are the the way people feel when the alcohol is wearing off, the so-called mm -hmm. hangover feeling. Um, yep. And for many people, that is um, that is an adequate uh, consequence that it might prevent uh, heavier drinking or repeated drinking or frequent drinking or something. But for some people, it, it really can become um, the accepted part of the their their situation, um, and so they can get through that. Um, mm -hmm. As you mentioned, you know, it depends on what your responsibilities and if you're able to maintain your responsibilities, you know, people that are staying up late drinking uh, and have a job that they have to be responsible at at 6 a.m. That that's that's a that's a complicated combination to sustain. Um, so that that would influence some people, again, if they had the positive self-esteem and the the this strong personal motivation to continue to do well in those areas that that would be. Um, possibly something that would limit that. Um, but there are there are many people that appear to be able to um, adequately succeed at their at their responsibilities, even if they're not at their best because of that. The longer term consequences are well known. You know, there are many cancers that are, have increased risk with uh, alcohol use. Um, certainly the effects on brain, liver, heart, kidneys um, are well known. That there, there is an association with multiple cardiovascular risks, you know, stroke and, and high blood pressure, which can lead to stroke and, and heart attack and so forth. Um, and certainly in the pregnant uh, population or, or women that are, that are um, of reproductive age that might become pregnant, um, alcohol can have devastating consequences. So physically, I think they're very well documented. Socially, um, we have talked about that. There, uh, again, are multiple examples in the media um, and and where it is somewhat made to be glamorous um, to be um, partaking in you know fine alcohol of sorts or or, or make that a centerpiece and and it certainly is well documented in many films that, that you know scenes that are intended to be funny or people in over drinking drunk situations so there's 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 that kind of impact um, I think a category all into itself is the injury potential. Drunk driving is the, the most glaring example probably, but other physical injuries to yourself and injuries that you may cause other cause to other people from that is, is an important consideration too. Um, academically, missing classes, not being able to study, um, not, not uh, seeing that as in that preparation as um, or, or not seeing the preparation for your studies as important as the social activities, those kind of things are. Yeah. As well. All right, and then, so what stigma um, have you found that there is around substance use misuse in general, and in particular, uh, in relation to alcohol? Again, again, this is tricky um, because it it is, so widely accepted in many circumstances, even expected, 
that um, I, I have personally witnessed lots of times if, um, if a woman is not drinking in a social situation, even if it's not a heavy drinking situation, people assume that she's pregnant or, or something like that and, um, and, and or has had a previous problem with alcohol and is abstaining for those kind of reasons. So I think, I think some of the stigma is that people are occasionally put into a position where they almost feel like they have to have an explanation for why they're not drinking. Um, that's that. I think, I think through the decades, I have seen much uh, healthier trends where, where it is, it is more widely accepted not to drink. And there are many, many more activities. It seems to me um, for our um, young adult age groups that don't center on alcohol. And so that I think, and I hope maybe that's getting to be less of a widespread situation, but I, I feel certain it's still in sometimes it is still kind of the expectation that you would, you would join in and do that. The stigma, um, again, again, the black and white thinking for some people that, that anyone that would use alcohol has a problem with alcohol. Um, that, that can be very devastating for employers, for civic groups, for uh, spiritual communities, you know, if, if, if that is going on. And some of the consequences that come from alcohol use um, can be very emotionally charged. Um, again, the, the probably one of the easiest examples is uh, drunk driving, particularly if there's been an injury related to that. I mean, that that is something that I think people uh, appropriately so are very passionate to try to prevent and, and handle. So there's there's lots of different ways you can be stigmatized. Mm -hmm. Definitely. And I actually have seen, so I, I agree with the fact that a lot of times, especially at gatherings or any social, you know, anything socially where it's so accustomed to have um, alcohol provided um, or served. And I do think that there is sometimes a lack of um, non-alcoholic options. Mm -hmm. You know, it's almost just accepted where you'll just have, um, not so much me and, and my stage of life, but uh, at weddings and such where you have, you know, a glass of champagne pre-poured. Um, and that can be very triggering um, uh, for somebody that, you know, if they shouldn't be in front of that um, glass of champagne yeah. or any alcoholic beverage. That, that, is, if, that is a great point. Yep. Yeah. And, and if the, even if there's sometimes alternatives, it's like, you know, a soda or like a one kind of something like that, where it's not the most glamorous uh alternative and I, but I do know that some people actually which is kind of cool to see I know other campuses that are involved um, in CSPF with me have put on different like um, sober sober uh, programs where they provide like mocktails is kind of mm -hmm. been kind of a cool thing um, that I've been seeing on social media and hearing about so that's um, that, that's I guess one plus of uh, social media you find out about some of those things that you wouldn't otherwise Right. Right. I mean, there, it's been really kind of a big marketing thing too, that, that there are more non-alcoholic fine wine and yes. champagne, for example. Um, but I think many people are complicit in, in, in being a trigger for people for oh, your wedding example is a good example that, you know, people might even say to someone who really does choose to abstain for lots of important reasons to themselves. Um, oh, come on, you know, be a sport, right. just have a glass. Right. Yeah, no, I, yeah. so I think that, that that's a huge stigma too, um, especially like you said, the assumptions that people make if you say, no, I'm okay tonight. I don't, I don't feel like um, consuming a drink tonight. Um, the assumptions that kind of follow that are in itself uh, stigmatizing. Right, right, absolutely. 
All right, so moving on, how do you think prevention um, can impact alcohol misuse among college and professional students? Um, I think you, you have mentioned several things already, um, non-alcohol centered options, um, mm -hmm. other activities, um, at sober parties that, that can have the, you know, the food choices and the drink choices can be just as lovely without alcohol, um, if, if that is made available. I think that is very encouraging. And then I think the more that it is widely accepted, um, you know, I, it, it, it is not a new concept, but it is, but it was not as much um, in, in action when I, when I was uh, in undergrad years that to have living facilities that are sober houses and so forth. Um, and that is a great idea if that is someone that really wants to do that. But in many campuses that becomes a different stigma that that you know people have other different adjectives describe describing that group of people that are um, not not true necessarily. I mean, they're just people that have chosen not not to use alcohol and other drugs and and so forth. But it is, um, I, I think, opportunities like that for people that that want to do that and to have that be more um, more widely accepted and be be the norm as 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 much as as choosing to do that i didn't say that very eloquently but i i my point is just to have that as options you know that um there is no right or wrong for that i think um i think that the open conversation is really something that educators um and uh and faculty staff peers can do with each other you know if you if you are concerned about someone's drinking um it it it, it is ideal, um, in my opinion, to be able to have that conversation privately before it is written up to a lever, level of a disciplinary thing or a, a, an official level of concern. And many, many people are open to conversations um, that if they are framed properly and, and genuine, if they're genuine, that's important, that, um, that there is a concern raised and it's not a judgment, it's a concern. And um, you know, the classic I message, I'm, I'm concerned about mm -hmm. your drinking and your use of alcohol. Um, would it be okay if I talk about that with you a little bit? So, you know, describing it, getting permission for it. And I think, I think that on campuses and on professional campuses as well, um, I think that that should be more encouraged um, way before the level of raising any kind of official concern. Um, I think that would be much more effective. Right, right. So you're kind of touching on like the proactive rather than reactive approach. Absolutely. I think in prevention. Yeah, and I and I agree with that. And I think, um, yeah, having resources is great, but also making sure people are aware of those resources, the prevention. Because I think a lot of times, especially with alcohol, people jump to thinking about AA, and that's kind of maybe where they the extent of what uh, they know is available to them. Um, and NA for um, substance use. And I think I think a lot of times there are so many great prevention resources in a given community, um, such as ours, but I think sometimes what's lacking is the promotion that um, it's not always the most glamorous um, thing to you know post about and to see on social media. So I think sometimes that there are outcomes that could be you know enhanced, um, mm -hmm. different you know statistics that might be uh, you know curbed by, better awareness of uh, resources. And, and I think that that starts, you know, still in a position like that, that you um, have a, as a physician. Um, I think that's like a key, a key role um, that, that you play um, 
in, in primary care. Absolutely. And, and you know, one of the statistics that you read often is that people are less likely to go to their primary care doctor um, because of their drinking, but it's usually, it's more common to be related to a consequence of the drinking, which they may or may not even be uh, connecting themselves or willing to admit to themselves might be it. But uh, in primary care, there's many opportunities. You know, if someone um, has had a, a, a lack of success at work or at school, you know, you can kind of explore what mm. what things might have been associated with that. If there's been an injury, you know, that is a, that is a very good time. With younger adolescents in primary care, um, you know, to, to approach a conversation about that, you know, many people in your age group um, go to parties where there's drinking. Are, are some of your friends drinking? Um, can be a much better lead-in than, are you drinking? <laughs> or worse yet, you're not drinking, are you? Um, right. <laughs> right. I'm getting flashbacks to our communication labs. And no, I think, <laughs> no, but I think it's, I think it's true. And I think sometimes what's forgotten is just making sure to acknowledge that everyone's you know, path to recognizing, acknowledging, but also to begin their recovery tract is not linear by any means. So I think that sometimes um, people have a hard time, whether it be a, you know, a family member, a loved one, or a physician sometimes where if you offer advice or kind of probe a question and someone's not, not yet ready to have that conversation and maybe to admit it to themselves that they, that they might need um, change. I think that sometimes people back off and take that as, oh, well, take it personally, rather than it just being the person is not at the point yet where they're ready to have the conversation. Um, but I think what that really comes down to at that point would be utilizing prevention resources and having the support system to recurrently, um, you know, not, not probe them, but just be there and, uh, you know, kind of be that resource, um, you know, as a, as a role of a primary care provider too, um, to consistently be there um, for when the conversation, um, when they're ready to have that conversation. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and, you know, your point that it's not linear is, is so true. And people, people may need to hear um, a, a doctor, a teacher, a friend raise a concern many times before it really is actually, um, I mean, dif- we all have different defense mechanisms, but denial is a pretty strong one for a lot of us. And, I think that it is important um, to try again. And you might even, you know, depending on your relationship with the person, um, is it okay? Is it okay if I circle back and check in with you in a couple of weeks about this again? You know, that might be easier for someone um, like a, a physician or healthcare provider or a, or an educator rather than a friend. But there's different ways that a friend could bring it up again. And certainly um, if there is another episode where you have seen misuse, potential misuse, um, you can circle back to that um, at the appropriate time. And so I, I think that, I think that, um, boy, there are certainly a lot more resources. AA is a great example and has helped so many people and is still helping so many people. NA, same thing. But some people have a real uh, preconceived negative notion of AA and they, for whatever reason, personal experience, you know, representations on on social media or, or film or whatever, um, or they are concerned about the higher power um, process in that. So there are other, there are other similar programs that have steps involved and do that. And there are so many online, um, relatively anonymous 
uh, support groups now that were not available before. So if people really, you know, we live in a tiny town. So this is, this town is an example of someone who really might benefit from AA. And even though there are very well-respected and well-formulated rules for privacy and that might have con- some concerns um, about, about going to a, a meeting in a, in a small town, but there are so many other options online. And, you know, to if, if you have someone in your life like that, offer to go with them. You know, they're, everyone is welcome at these meetings, whether it's online or um, or in person and, and going with them can be a big support too. Yeah. All right, so in terms of specifics, um, are there any specific um, prevention strategies that you found um, perhaps in your practice to have uh, had the most impact on alcohol misuse outcomes? You know, I, I think in in uh, in life and in primary care um, that that be- anything that requires a behavioral change is a difficult process. So if we are asking someone to modify their diet because they have glucose intolerance or they need to lose weight because they're having consequences from obesity um, or or any any smoking you know any any kind of um, habit or behavioral change, I think that that can be very threatening and very daunting. And it is always associated almost always with a sense of loss for the person because they are as, as much as externally, we may see only negative consequences for that person of an activity that we don't think is in their best interest. They may be getting something very positive from it. Um, even if it is just quelching some of the angst and anxiety and, and making their world a little more um, acceptable. But at any rate, so when we are asking people to make a change, I think, I think for most people um, it is helpful to, to acknowledge that very small steps, very small steps are important steps. In motivational in interviewing, it's helpful sometimes to identify, um, help the person identify what, how much better are you gonna feel if you do make this change? And what are the consequences if you don't make this change? That might be more sophisticated than some people are ready to get it at that time, but it can, can be part of the education, um, which hopefully will become motivational for the person. And then really, when you, when you really want to break it down, you know, what is, what is one thing you could do this week, you know, and um, in the alcohol misuse, um, well, I could, I could try to go to that event this Saturday night and not drink and see how that goes for me. You know, you haven't made the commitment. You're never, ever going to drink for the rest of your life. But just the beginning of that, I think, can be a very positive step. I think yeah. that, is, um, that is the case for many people. Having said that, there are some people that are ripe, that are, it, it, I mean, it is, it is amazing to me still after all these years where you can bar- you barely have to complete the sentence that you're concerned and they're ready, ready to be sent to treatment. And, you know, I mean, that does, that is rare, but when that happens, you know, you think to yourself, wow, this, I am grateful for this moment to be here, but did I miss other moments? <laughs> we might've had this conversation even earlier, but so when people are ready to help them, you know, as much as possible, stop what you're doing and really try to help them get, get connected. Yeah. Yep. And I think, I think also from a educational um, question seeking standpoint in terms of finding out their, their reason, finding out their why for not only why they consume, but also why right now they want to, they're willing to um, change their behavior. And I think it's important too. And kind of like what you were talking about, it figuring out as a provider um, or just as, you know, uh, a person in their, uh, in, in, in a life with, with someone else that, that you're concerned about, that you're advocating for, 
um, how important it is just to figure out what their goals are um, in terms of cha behavior change. Do they want to go cold turkey? Do they want to stop forever? Do they want to, you know, cut back from, you know, maybe five, five drinks a week to two? Um, so I think it's important to kind of navigate that and just realizing that everyone's journey to recovery to change is not, um, not going to be uh, the same. So I think that that's kind of just touching on that point. And that, and that slips and slides will be more common than not. Um, and again, it does not have to be black and white that, well, I tried that and obviously right. I failed. Um, that's okay. You know, start again today. We can start right now. I, I think I just, I, before we close, I do, I do want to say that, um, there are, there are some things that I think are so critically important that e even if people are not quite ready to acknowledge that they have a problem that needs, needs attention and, and should, should try to find motivation to, to, uh, change that behavior, there are some things that I think are so important, like drinking and driving that, mm -hmm. you know, that you can push harder for and potentially get, you know, get pushback, you know, for parents of adolescents, you know, if you are drinking at a party, call me, I will pick you up and we will not have a conversation about it. That is the right thing for you to do. You know, don't drive. Um, mm -hmm. And, and in, in older adults and or younger adults who are older, different kinds of things like that friends can offer for that. But I think, I think sometimes if you can attach um, one's personal decisions to such potentially huge consequences for themselves and others. Um, same kind of thing with drinking um, to excess and in front of your small children or teenage children and stuff like that. So I think if you can find um, small steps like that, even if the person is not is not quite ready for the for the major step, that can be extremely helpful. Right. Yeah, and and I, I kind of wanted to. Um, just touch on what you said before about the loss aspect. And I think that's huge. And I think that's often, so often overlooked. I'm really glad you brought that up because, you know, that there is a sense of loss, um, regardless of what you're giving up um, to change your behavior. That is something that, that should be recognized and, um, you know, appreciated in, in terms of right. working with someone who's making a big change in their life. Right. They are, they are giving up a part of, you know, what was um, to get to where, you know, maybe you advocated for them to be or to get to where they want to be. So I think that that's something that shouldn't be overlooked also. So I'm glad you brought that up. Right. And there are, uh, this is beyond the scope of our conversation today, Devin, but there are, there are lots of levels of support besides the, um, besides the local outpatient kind of stuff. There's certainly inpatient and there are medications, you know, that have become very directed at helping with the cravings and the, um, the the positive benefits happen you know if you're if you're blocking the receptor the GABA receptors that would that would promote some of the euphoria and the um, endorphin rush that if you're blocking that then the then much like the uh, opioid use that that can be helpful for select people that doesn't work for everyone but um, but there are there are other levels of care too right yeah I think that's important to note too that's something I kind of left out of the um, of my last conversation I think that's Yep. So there's definitely, right. And, and, ex and exactly what works for one person might not work for the next 10 people. So I think that that's, um, there are a lot of different aspects in terms of prevention and treatment of um, something like alcohol use, misuse or alcohol use disorder. Right. Right. And then um, just before we wrap up, do you um, have anything else um, that you want to kind of add? Um, Gosh, um, I think, I think you're doing a great service here to bring this conversation out and, uh, and to keep that in, um, I just would would encourage people. We're all works in progress, right? So, um, it 
almost never helps to just judge someone and not figure out really what's what's behind all the things that they're going through and and just to try to try to meet your meet your patient your partner your friend um, where they are is very helpful i think yes definitely well i really um so greatly appreciate your time your perspective um, and your role in both medical education as well as um, your community um, uh, medical um, provider so thank you for thank you again for um, joining us today and thank you to our listeners for joining our conversation today and we will see you next time on our podcast the change we seek thank you bye-bye thank you again for listening to our podcast and please visit our facebook page instagram page and our website at www.mupervention.org to learn more about the CSPF PFS initiative and upcoming events and activities happening on your campus. Learn how you can help us to support, enhance, and build the collegiate prevention infrastructure. Again, the views and opinions expressed in this podcast are only those of the hosts and guests. They are not the views and opinions of SAMHSA, Marshall University Research Corporation, the West Virginia Collegiate Strategic Prevention Framework Partnership for Success, and or the Participating Institute of Higher Education. Our track is by Soundroll, and the title is Feeling Home. Thank you.